If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me this evening and taken the time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, we'll be taking a stroll along the woodland path with naturalist author Winthrop Packard. We'll be in amongst the March winds and traversing the forest roads of New England. If you haven't already, find yourself a place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. March winds. For two days, the mad March winds have been blowing a fifty-mile gale, setting all the woodland crazy. No wonder the March hare is mad. He lives in Bedlam. No sooner does he squat comfortably in his form, his fair fat belly with round apple tree bark lined, topped off with wee green sprigs of rash but succulent spring herbs from the brookside, ready to contemplate nature with all the philosophy which such a condition engenders. Then the form rises in the air and its component leaves skitter through the wood and over the hill out of sight, leaving him denuded. The usual dignified and gentle trees Howl like beagles on this trail. The protecting scrub oaks, gone mad too, dab and flit at him till he gets fidgety with thoughts of horned owls and things rattling down out of the sky as if being pelted with buckshot. All these matters get on his nerves after a little, and if he sets his cotton-tail white flag at half-mast from fear, goes whooping through the brush in a frenzy, there is small blame to him. Even man, whose mental girth and weight are supposed to be ballast sufficient against all buffeting, going forth on such a day needs the buttons of his composure well sewed on 
or he will find it ripped from him like the hare's form and sent skittering down the lee along with his hat, while he himself bolts here and there, fighting phantoms and objugating the unseen. Mad March winds are a good test of stability of soul. He who can stand there welting with serenity can watch his unanchored personal belongings go mad with the March hare and still thrid the sombre boskage of the wood with sunny thought and no venom beneath his tongue ought to be president. Even the New York papers could not make him bring suit. And after the two days of gale, how sweet the serenity that came to that thrashed and winnowed pasture and woodland. I fancy it all feeling like a boy at school who, after being soundly flogged, gets back to the soothing calm of his accustomed seat. There is a gentle joy about that feeling, as many of us know, has neither alloy nor equal. The whole woodland, thus spanked and put away to cool, feels the winter of its discontent vanishing behind it and has no room in its heart for aught but the peace and joy of regeneration. The gale began to fail before the second day, and before midnight it was dead. Thus short-lived its frenzy. I do not know if those last gentle sighs were those of the wind in sorrow of its misdeeds, thus on its deathbed repentant or those of the trees, themselves given a chance to sleep at last, after a forty-hour fight for their lives. In the threshing and winnowing of the woodland, none but the physically fit may survive. Oaks that had held their last year's leaves lovingly on the twig had to let them go like the veriest chaff, and all twigs and limbs that have been weakened and as chaff and debris is thus pruned from the forest, so those trees themselves that are not physically fit for the struggle for existence are weeded out. The eye may not be able to pick these, but the gale finds them. If the whelming pressure of their steady onrush is not sufficient to bring them down, the racking of varying force and the torsion of sudden changes in direction will snap the weakened trunk or tear out the loosened roots. Then there is a groan and a crash, and space for the younger growth to spread towards more light and air. At no time of the year is the weakness of root hold so liable to be fatal to a tree as now. During the winter, a gale may snap a tree off at the trunk and smash it boldly to the ground. If there is no weakness in the trunk, there can be none in the roots, for the frost that is set about them holds even the shortest, as if embedded in stone. But now, when the solvent ice has loosened the whole surface for a depth of a foot or more, leaving it fluffy and disintegrated, those trees which have no tap roots and hold only in this lightened surface are in the greatest danger of uprooting of the whole year. 
farmers often clear a shrubby pasture in late March or early April, hereabout by taking advantage of this fact. They make a trace chain fast about the base of a pasture cedar or a stout huckleberry bush, and with a word to the old horse, the shrub is dragged from the softened earth, root and all. In midsummer, after the ground has become compact, it is not to be done. It is in the spring house-cleaning time of the year, when nature is sweeping and picking up, preparatory to laying new carpets and getting new furnishings throughout, and if any of the old furniture of the woodland is not able to stand the strain, it has to go to the woodpile. Without mad March winds, the forest would lose much of its fresh virility, the old deadwood would cumber the new growth, and the mild melancholy of decay would prevail as it does in some swamps, where sheltering surrounding hills and close growth shunt the gales. Yet, though house cleanings are no doubt necessary and beneficial, few of us love them, and we hail with equal joy the resultant cleanliness and the cessation of the uproar. The two days gale finally got all the winds of the world piled up somewhere to the southward and ceased, and the piled up atmosphere drifted back over us, bringing mild blue haze that was like smoke from the fires of summer floating far. All things that had been taut and dense relaxed into dimples or softened into tears. The frost went out of the ploughed fields that morning, though the sun was too blurred with the kindly blue mist to have any force. It was just the general relaxation which did it. Then is apt to come to a halcyon day, and though the kingfisher is not here to brood, nor will he be for a month, his fabled weather slips on its advance to cheer us. It may not last a day. March is as mad as April is fickle, and you will need to start early to be sure of it. Then, even if you come home in a snowstorm, you will at least have had a brief glimpse of the sunny softness which is dearer in March than in any other month. This morning, in that calm which is most apt to settle on the land just before sunrise, the whole woodland seemed to breathe freely and beam in its soft air. The bluebirds carolled all about, and where a few days ago one song sparrow surprised me with his song, a dozen tubulated in the pasture bushes. A half dozen blackbirds flew over, and though I could not see a single red appellet in the grey light, and listened in vain for that melodious Conqueree, which no other bird can sing. I knew them as well by their call of Chut-Chuck, which is equally characteristic. A flock of goldfinches lighted in the pines, with much twittering and suggestions of summer flight note of Peritree. But that is no more than they have been doing all winter. In a moment, though, the twittering changed. A melodious note began to come into it, and soon several in the flock were singing rival songs 
as sweet, though I do not think as loud, as those they will sing when June's warmth sets the whole bird world acquiring. It was a happy note in the cool spring air, for it was more than a spring song. The bluebirds and song sparrows voiced that, but the song of the goldfinch is a song of summer, and irresistibly reminds one of fervid June heat and full-leaved trees. It was a warming, whining chorus, and it brought the sun up over the horizon, seemingly with a bound. In all this joy of early matins, I still miss one bird note that is surely ought to be heard by now, and that is the robins. Robins are here in considerable numbers, but not one of them have I heard sing. I'm afraid the robin is lazy, but, perhaps, it is just his honest, matter-of-fact nature, which does not believe in forcing the season. He will sing loud and long enough, by and by. Such a spring morning in the best season of the year for moth hunting. The moths are all sound asleep still, tucked away in their cocoons, that are also tucked away in the woodland, where it is not so easy to see them in winter. Now the mad March winds have swept the last brown leaves from the bushes, and such moths are hanging up there for the winter sleep are easily seen. You may take them home and hang them up where you see fit, and you will then be on hand to greet the moth when at his leisure he feels prompted to come forth from his snug sleeping bag. I always find more of the spice bush silk moth than others, perhaps because we both love the same woodland spots, borders of the ponds and streams where the benzoin and sassafras flourish, where the wild cherry hangs out its white racemans in May. They dangle freely in the wind, looking for all the world like a leftover leaf rolled by accident into a rude cylinder. Yet the moth is safe and warm within, rolled up in a silken coat that is firmly glued to the leaf, and not only that, but extends in silky fabric all up along the petiole and firmly holds it to the twig itself. The mad winds which have scoured the bush clean of all leaves and debris have had no strength which can pluck this last leaf upon the tree. If left to itself, it will still hang there a year or two, perhaps more, after the moth has emerged, gradually bleaching to a soft grey, but still clinging. It is a splendid quality of silk, but no one has yet succeeded in reeling or carding it. Calasamia promethea thus escapes, becoming a product of the farm rather than the pasture. It is a fine species to have hanging in winter cradles above your mantle, for the amargo is large and beautiful, with deep browns and tans softly shading into greys that are tinted with iris, the male being distinct with a body colour of deep brown, less diversified than a colouring of its mate. The Samia cesropia is another of our silkworm moths, 
whose cocoon is not difficult to find. The Cesropia, instead of rolling up in a pendant leaf, constructs his cocoon without protection, and glues it right side up beneath a stout twig, or even a considerable limb. I have one now that I took from the underside of a big leaning alder bowl, skiving it off the bark, but most of those I have collected have been attached to slender twigs of low shrubs. But, though the Cesropia does not roll up in a leaf, he is apt to place his winter home where dead leaves will persist about him. I have never found him so plentiful as the Promethea, though he is commonly reported as numerous, and in beauty of colouring is surpassed, to my mind, only by two others. One of these is the Telia polyphemus, a wonderful creature, almost as large as the Seropia, all a soft, rosy tan, with fleckings of grey and white and bands of soft violet grey and pink, and great eye spots of white, margined with yellow, browed with peacock blue, and ringed with violet black. The lava, which is bigger than a man's big thumb, is a beautiful shade of transparent green, with side slashings of silvery white, and feeds on most of our deciduous forest trees. I have had most luck in finding them on chestnuts. Last fall, when beating a chestnut tree for the nuts, I dislodged several, one of which I brought home and put in a cage with some leaves. He refused to eat, but in a day or so spun a cocoon down in the corner of the box with a chestnut leaf glued over him. No wonder we rarely see either moth, caterpillar or cocoon. The larva dwells in the higher trees, rolls himself in leaves in the autumn, and spends the winter on the ground, usually covered out of sight by other leaves. Then the moth, wary and swift, flies only by night. The Actius Luna, the beautiful, long-tailed, green luna moth, is, I think, better known for it has a way of flitting about woodland glades in late June or July, before nightfall. But in the caterpillar or the cocoon, it is as hard to find as the polyphemus, and for similar reasons. It, too, feeds upon walnut and hickory, and in the fall spins a papery cocoon among the dried leaves on the ground. The lunar moth is to me the highest type of moth beauty, and it is worth a long search among the leaves to find a cocoon of either this or polyphemus, and have the splendid privilege of seeing the lovely inmate later emerge, spread into fairy-like wings, and soar away in the soft spring twilight. It is a great wonder as it would be to step some midsummer midnight into a fairy ring, and, after having speech with Mab and Titania and Puck and Ariel, see them flit daintily across the face of the rising moon and vanish into the purple dusk. The world of the Polyphemus and the Luna and the Cesropia and the Promethea 
is as far removed from ours and full of strange romance as that. Along the pond shore on these mad March days, one gets glimpses of another world, too, that is, I dare say, as regardless of us as we are of that the moths. This morning, in the dusk of young dawn, the pond was like a black mirror reflecting the shadows of the sky. But across it, near the middle, was drawn a silver streak, the path of ducks swimming. Presently, I heard their voices, the resonant quack of a black duck, and the hoarse pra-pup, pra-pup, of the drake. As they called, into the pond with a splash came a small flock of divers, showing white as they whirled to settle. The two species swam together, seemed to look each other over, held who knows what conversations in their own way, then separated. It is not far for black ducks and buffleheads to congregate, especially in the spring, and while the black duck and drake swam sedately away, the buffleheads began to hunt the small white perch which swim in schools near the surface, making a splash as if a stone were thrown into the water at every lightning-like dive. Just as many a man here in Massachusetts lives his life and dies without ever having seen or heard of a polyphemus moth or a bufflehead, though both may fly over his own head on many a dusky twilight, so the migrating thousands of ducks each year fly over our cities and know little of their uproar and bustle, nothing of their yearnings towards art or theology or of the inspiration of poets, or the agony of the downtrodden. Their world is all important to them, ours is nothing, so they escape our guns, which they vaguely feel will harm them. Even we, with our books, our laboratories, and our concerted research into all things under heaven, and our concerted research into all things under heaven and in earth, do not get very far into the lives of other creatures. I have said all the moths are still in their cocoons. Perhaps they are. All but one, at least. That is a small, brown fellow that came flying across the brook in the chill air of a sunset a night or two ago, and now lies dead on my desk. I caught him for I wanted to know what moth dares come forth when the ground was still frozen and no bud had yet burst. But I would better have let him fly along to work out his own destiny, for in all the moth book there is no mention of this wee brown creature that dared the frosty night with frail wings. I do not think he was an uncommon species. Moths are so numerous that only the most characteristic varieties of the more important species can be noticed in the textbooks. On my way home, I crossed a sunny glade among the pines, and here I met an old friend, and had another example of the workings of other lives whose wisdom or ability is beyond our ken. On the dark trunk of a pine was sitting the spring's first specimen, 
so far as my observation goes, of butterfly life. An Antiopa Vanessa, his morning cloak so closely folded that it made him invisible against the pine tree bark. As I drew near, he flipped into the air and sailed by, beautiful in his tan-yellow border with its spots of soft blue. I say he was on the pine bark, but I did not see him there. For aught I know, so well was he concealed. The tree opened and let him out, then closed, that his hiding place might not be revealed. I would almost as soon believe this as to believe what lepidopodrists assure me is true, that this frail creature lives through zero gales and deep snows of five months of winter to come out in the first bright days of early spring unharmed. It is as likely that a pine trunk would voluntarily conceal him as that he could survive, frozen solid in some crevice in a stone wall or hollow stump. At any rate, he is out again, along with the herpaceous and song sparrows, and though the March winds and March hare may both go mad again, we have had moments when the spring was very near. Wood Roads Some time in the night, the tender grey spring mists that the hot afternoon sun had coaxed up from all the meadowy places realised that they were deserted, lost in the darkness. The young moon had gone decorously to bed at nine o'clock, pulling certain cloud puffs of white down over even the tip of her nose that she might not be tempted to come out and dance with these lovely pale creatures. They were dancing then, but later they trembled together in fright, for the kindly stars, their shining eyes grown tremulous with tender tears, vanished too, withdrawn behind the black haze which the north wind sends before it. A nimbus, Wind blown from distant mountain tops was spread over the zenith, and through it the gentle spring mists heard resound the crack of doom. The voice of the north wind itself, made up of echoes of cracking ice flows out of the Hudson's Bay and the Arctic. Then the spring mists fled to earth again, but had no strength left to enter in. Instead, they lay there, dead, covering all things a half-inch deep with soft bodies of purest white, and we looked forth in the morning and said that there had been a robin's snow. It is a pity that those gentle, innocent, grey-blue spring mists should die, even to be lovely in death as they are, but it is their way of getting back home. In the morning, the repentant sun came and dissolved the white, silent ones into gentle tears, day-born dew that slipped down among the grass roots and lay moist cheeks close to daisy and violet buds as they went by, and almost loved them into blossom. A few more robin snows, and they will be all out, very likely somewhere a dandelion some sturdy, 
rough-and-ready youngster, quivered into yellow fluorescence in the caress. Robin snows and the cajoling sun of the last week of March often make summer enough for this honest, fearless flower. Quite likely the tender joy of the mist at getting back safe to earth under the caress of the eager sun and their terror of the north wind, which still rumbles by in the upper air, are both nascent on such days, for you have but to go out to feel them, and they inevitably lead you out of the raw mire of the highways, across the wind-swept pasture, into the wood roads. These on such days have an atmosphere of their own. Here, the thrill of the sun is as potent as the push of the X-ray. It slips through the clothes and flesh, nor do bones stay it till it tingles in the marrow, a vitalizing fire that is soothed and nourished by the soft essence of those dead mists, now glowing upwards from the moist hummus. No wonder the woodland things come to life and grow again at the touch. The north wind may howl high above. Here, under the trees, the soft airs that breathe out of Eden touch you, and you know that just round the curve of the road is the very gate itself. My way to the most secret and withdrawn country of these wood roads always leads me across Ponkapog Brook at the spot where rest the ruins of the old mill. It is three quarters of a century or more since it has last ground grist, and of its timbers, scarcely a moss-grown remnant remains. The gate to the old dam has been gone almost as long, but the waters do not forget. Every year, the spring floods bring down what driftwood the pond banks can spare, and bar their own course with it at this spot. The water rises as high as of old, for a brief time. It is as if the brook paid a memorial tribute thus yearly to the honest labour of the pioneers, now long gone. For a time it lasts, then the cementing bonds of the dead leaves fail, and the black flood roars through the sea. Come two months later, and where its highest rim touched, you will find that it has planted flowers in loving remembrance also, and saxifrage and dwarf blue violet lean in fragrant affection over the waters. I like to think that on Memorial Day, at least the stream makes echoes of the clank of the old time mill wheel in its liquid prattle, and that the shuttle of reflected sunshine dancing back and forth is a glorified ghost of the old wheels whirling once more in memory of the miller and his neighbours. Farther on, I reached the pond shore, and on the narrow ridge which marks the old-time high tide of winter ice pressure, a dry moraine always, though running through marshy land, I strike what must be the oldest trail in this part of the country. Here is a path which was travelled before the time of the Norman Conquest, or, for that matter, before Caesar led his victorious legion into Gaul. 
Here the first Native Americans trod dry-footed when they went back and forth about the pond in their hunting and fishing. For then, as now, it was a natural causeway. Today a stranger, seeking his way about the pond for the first time, would not fail to find it, and the habitual woodrover of the region, old or young, knows its every turn. Upon this today, between the marsh and the bog, in the alluring spring sunshine, I found a whole bird convention. Such an uproar. It was as if the suffragettes, in one grand concerted movement, had swooped down upon Parliament in the airship route, and were in the heat of battering down its walls of deafness with the racket and roaring after the fashion of the attempt on Jericho of old. The blackbirds were in the greatest numbers, and made the most noise individually. There were a hundred of them, more or less, sitting about in the trees and bushes, a few on the ground, and all of them practising every call or song that a blackbird was ever known to make. All the harsh croaking of frogs that as young birds they heard from the nest by the bog they voiced in their calls. All the liquid melody of gentle brooks tinkling over shallows, and the piping of winds in hollow marsh reeds. They reproduced in their songs, and the whole was jumbled in this uproarous melody. They even shamed a robin into singing. The first time I have heard these laggards do it this year, though they have been here in force for some weeks. There seemed to be no cause for this other than the joy of living. It was just as an impromptu concert in honour of the spring. I think I never noticed before how vigorously the blackbird uses its tail at one of these concerts. All the long black tails present worked up and down, as if each were a pump handle, working a bellow to supply wind to the pipings. It reminded me of the church organ loft, and the labours of the boy when the choir is in full swing, and the organist has everything opened up, and is dancing on the pedal notes to keep up. Either side of this trail, the wood should be a paradise for woodpeckers for the trees are here allowed to grow old without interference. In birch and maple stubs, the flickers have dug hole after hole, sometimes all up and down a single trunk. The downy woodpeckers have been active also, and the chickadees have reared many a nestful of fluffy chicks in the same neighbourhood. Yet, with all the opportunity that the flickers have had, to bore in soft, decaying wood for food or for shelter. I see that they have also dug a round hole through the inchboard in the peak of the old cranberry house. This, too, was probably for shelter, for many flickers winter with us, and there would be room in the old cranberry house loft for a whole community. But I wonder sometimes if there is not another reason. Just as beavers and squirrels must gnaw to keep their teeth from growing too long, so I sometimes think that woodpeckers need to hammer about so much, whether for food or not, 
to keep their bills in good condition. It is difficult to otherwise account for their continual practice. I knew a flicker once who used to drum a half hour at a time on a sheet iron ventilator on the roof of a building. I think he did it to keep his bill properly calloused and his muscles up, so that when he did tackle a shagbark tree with a fat, inch-long borer waiting in its heartwood, the chips would fly. This low pond bank moraine, with its immemorial trail, leads all along the north side of the pond, skirting the shoreward edge of the great bog nicely. It takes you through the Talbot Plains, where tan-brown levels stretch far to the northward, seeming to shrink suddenly back from the overhanging bulk of the great blue hill, and it leads again into the tall oak woods where later the warbling virose will swing in the topmost branches and cheer the solemn arches with their gentle carols. By and by, the bog ends and the path marks the dividing line between the bulrushes, marsh grass, bog hobble wickets and mingled debris of last summer's thoroughwort and joe pie weed and marsh St. John's wort on the one hand and the soft, pinky greys of the wood on the other. The climbing sun shines in here fervently, and the clear waters lap on the sand, and croon among the waterweeds with all the semblance of summer. No wonder the wild ducks linger long. The pond is full of them, black ducks and sheldrake, quacking and whistling back and forth sometimes forty of them in the air at once, and taking no notice of the wanderer on the bank. It seems to be their jubilee day, as well as that of the birds on the shore. Thus, by way of the long trail teeming with spring life, I reached the enchanted country of the wood roads. Here are no pastures reclaimed, no ancient cellar holes to show the path of the pioneer. Woodland it was when the first Englishman came to Cape Cod. Woodland it remains to this day. Somewhere in its depths, the barred owls are nesting, and I hear the shrill pine of a hawk as he harries the distant hillside. But for the most part, there is a gentle silence, a dignified quiet that befits the solitude. It is the hush of the elder years, dwelling in places somewhat man-harried indeed, but never by man possessed. In this country, to the east of Ponkapog Pond, lingered longest the moose and bear. The fox makes his home and his hunting ground still. I find his trail still warm, and in summer you should tread with care for an occasional rattlesnake trails his slow length among the rocks. The most that man has ever done here is to shoot and chop trees. The echoes of the axe and gun die away soon. The trees grow up again, and man's only mark is the wood roads. Roads in this world are supposed to lead from somewhere to somewhere else, 
but no suspicion of such definitiveness of purpose can ever be attached to wood roads, unless you are willing to say that they lead from the land of humdrum to the country of romance. Sometimes, in following them, you unexpectedly come out on the highway, but far more often you have better luck, and the plain trail grows gently vague, shimmers away to nothing, and you find yourself, perhaps, in a beech grove, out of which is no path. You can hear the young trees titter at your embarrassment, but you cannot find the path that led you among them. Perhaps in all your future wanderings, you may not come upon that beech grove again, for the wood roads wind and interlace and play strange tricks on all outsiders. Particularly over in this region, woodlot owners sometimes lose their woodlots and are able to get track of them only after prolonged search, tumbling upon them then more by accident than wit. Sometimes a wood road innocently leads you round a hill and slyly slips you into itself again through a gap in the thicket. Thus, before you know it, you may have gone around the hill any number of times, as strangers get coursing in revolving doors in the entrances to city buildings and continue to revolve until rescued. Nor can you tell where the most sedate and straightforward one which you can pick out will lead you, except that you know it will be continually through a land of delight, and that Eden is bound to be just ahead of you. It is difficult to understand, though, in all seriousness, how these roads persist. Wood cut off over extensive areas grows up again in thirty or forty years, and fills in the gap in the forest till no trace of it remains. Yet the roads by which it was carted to the highway, leading once as directly as possible, seem still to have some subtle power of resistance, whereby they are not overgrown, though they lose their directness. After a few years, it seems as if, glad to be relieved of any responsibility, they took to strolling aimlessly about, meeting one another and separating again, casually. I never see a woodcart coming out with a load, yet the road seems as definite in marking as it did half a century ago. But that is one of the fascinations of the region. You take the same road as usual, and by it, you come out at some strange and hitherto unheard-of garden of delight. It is like the Arabian Nights' entertainments, where one story leads into another, and you wander on with always a new climax just ahead of you. Out of the great pudding-stone boulders of this region, of which you may find specimens as large as an ordinary dwelling-house standing in lonely dignity. You may see cunning workmen making soil for the nourishment of these forest trees. Here will be a round blot of yellow-grey lichen, perhaps a parmelia conspersa, clinging to the smoothest surface of flint with ease and sending down its microscopic rhizoids into the tiniest crevice between the round pebble, which is the plum, 
and the slate which makes the body of the pudding. On another part of the boulder, you may find a slanting surface, where the parmelia's work is already done. Its tiny root organs have dissolved off and split away enough of the slate to loosen some tiny pebbles which fall to the ground as gravel, leaving hollows in which dew and dead lichens make a soil for the roots of soft pads of mosses. Some of the boulders over here are like western butts, densely tenanted by these hardy cliff-dwellers. The many-footed rock-lovers find foothold where you would hardly think the lichens ever would survive, which it sometimes seems as if the Pukwudgies moved about in the night for the confusion of men, without being lost, at least for a time, and finding a new boulder to worship. Once, thus lost, I found a little gem of a pond, which hides in the hollows a half a mile or so east from Ponkapog Pond. This too, I fear the Pukwudgies move about in the night. For I've heard of many men who have found it once, and sought it again in vain. Today, I came upon it once more, a cup of clear water in the hollow of the forest's hand, smiling up at the sky, with neither inlet or outlet. The black ducks had found it too. They greeted my approaching footsteps with quacks of alarm, and I had hardly rounded the bushes on the bank before sixteen of them, with much splashing, rose heavily into the air and sailed off towards the big pond. Even in their fright, I noticed that they went out as the animals did from the ark, two by two, and I smiled, for it is one more sign of spring. I noticed the crows in couples today for the first time. A few black ducks breed hereabout, and the little pond with the button bushes growing along one shallow shore, as thick as manor groves in a West Indian swamp, might well be considered by house-hunting couples. Sitting under a mountain laurel, whose leaves furnish the only shade on the bank, I watched quietly for nearly half an hour. Then there was a soft swish of sailing wings, and a pair dropped lightly in without splashing enough to be heard. Yet there was little to see, after all. They simply sat, mirrored in the motionless water, for another half hour by the town clock, looking adoration into one another's eyes, then snuggled close and swam in among the button bushes as if with one foot. That was all. It was a veritable Quaker meeting lovemaking, but just the same, I shall look for the nest among the buttonbush mangroves in another month, and I do hope that the Pukwudgies will not have mixed the wood roads and hidden the pond so well that I cannot find it.